Today marks the 24th anniversary of the fall of the Berlin Wall, but what does that really mean? We're talking personal experience and history this week on Footnoting History. Occasionally I get asked when I decided that I was going to become a historian, or what event in my life sort of pushed me in that direction. And I have to say that when I was about probably 9 or 10, so this would be 87 or 88, I was really upset that I was sitting at home working on my homework for social studies when it was a beautiful day outside, and I would much rather be running through the woods with our Bernese mountain dogs. Now, I've never really been known for my patience, so when I threw my pencil across the room and demanded why we needed to study history because it was just stupid and everything had already happened anyway, I was rather surprised when our German friend Waldemar Menzel walked into the room and sat down with me and just gave me this very strange look. He hadn't always lived in Germany, he said. When he was very young, he and his brother and his parents lived in Poland, but they were ethnically German. Um, And when the Russian army started marching across Poland, his mother packed the two boys, I think both toddlers at that point, and walked them from the fields of Poland to the center of Frankfurt on foot. As you can imagine, being ethnically German in the face of the Russian army, was probably not something that you wanted to be, and so his mother walked them to safety. He said he would never forget the look on her face when they arrived at the address that she had written down for them to go to and found nothing but a pile of rubble. She sat on the street corner with her two toddler boys and started to cry, and she was rescued by a an American soldier who suggested strongly that they lived in the building that uh, had been destroyed and so qualified for refugee status and some of the rebuilding programs that were being uh, put in place in Frankfurt. His wife, Gisela, was the daughter of a politician active in a fairly sizable town nearby, Gießen, and because of his anti-Nazi policies, just never came home one day. As he finished his stories, he told me, Kirsty, this is why we study history. We need to know that these things happened, and we need to understand why, so that we can keep them from happening again. Now, this is something that really stuck with me. Um, Up to that point, I'd always thought of history as being things that happened to dead people, things that didn't really matter to anybody who was active in the modern world. And of course, I was fundamentally and childishly wrong. In the next two or three years following this particular conversation, I came to realize that history is something that you live every day, and that the history that you read in school books, the history that you read in the surviving sources is one level of what you what is going on, but it's such a pale shadow of human experience. And in some situations, in some events, you can really see this human element coming out in history. And in Europe in the late 80s, this was a time that you could not deny that history was unfolding in front of your eyes. To fully understand how, though, I'd like to take a quick step back and look once again at Waldemar's story, where he was ethnically German 
and caught in the crossfires in Poland. Uh, to be ethnically German, even in Germany in the post-war years, was a dicey prospect. A lot of the funding and relief aid that was coming into Europe, which had been completely decimated in World War II, was earmarked more for the Allies than for Germany. And the rations that were issued to the German people were very slim. Many Germans became forced labor, and over a million of them died in pretty tragic conditions in the years following 1945. Most of Europe was very angry with the German nation, and in particular, Russia had quite an axe to grind. Now, I'm not sure if you've ever looked at a casualty list for World War II. If not, I actually suggest that you do so. Uh, if you do, you'll see that Russia lost 20 million people. Half of those were uh, soldiers and half of those were citizens. Over half a million people died in just the Stalingrad campaign alone. And that doesn't necessarily even include the total civilian loss because no one actually knows how many people died there. Uh, this, in part, explains some of Russia's aggressive stance in the post-war period. Um, that combined with Stalin's paranoia and uh, expansion policy meant that it was definitely going to be tough going in the years after World War II. The four main ally powers, that would be the United Kingdom, France, the U.S., and Russia, agreed to divide Germany up into four quadrants. So France had the Southwest, UK had the Northwest, U.S. had the South, and Russia held, of course, the East. And over the following years, France, Britain, and the United States gave their sections back. Of course, Russia didn't. And Berlin, the traditional capital of Germany, was a 100 miles inside the Russian quarter. Now, as the capital, Berlin had been quartered in pretty much the same way that the rest of the country had. The city was divided into those four quadrants. This, of course, caused no end of diplomatic trouble. Russia wanted complete control of the city, and so from the 24th of June in 1948 to the 12th of May in 1949, they created a blockade to try to essentially starve the West out of Berlin. Now, the Western response to this was to basically start airlifting in all of the supplies for, for the city. The airlift was maintained by the United States, the United Kingdom, Australia, South Africa, New Zealand, and Canada. And the Allies proved that they had no qualms whatsoever about spending whatever they needed to spend to get Berlin taken care of. And um, this did not exactly fit in with what Russia expected. Stalin basically expected the West to stand aside and um, that would pave the way for a united Germany as part of the Soviet bloc. Since that didn't happen, instead Russia focused on establishing an East German government and separating it further from its Western uh, counterparts. The border between East and West Germany was formally closed on the 1st of April 1952. West Berlin, however, was still a huge headache for the East because it served as an easy point for uh, basically a brain drain, massive immigration from the East to the West. 
Overnight on the 13th of August in 1961, authorities began to section off East Berlin from its western quadrants. Now, the barriers were built firmly within the eastern quadrant of the city, which prevented the West from being able to do anything about it. This area was under Russian control, and they could build what they wanted. The fences built along the border between East and West Germany were built in a similar fashion. All of the barriers are actually within eastern borders. It wasn't really a wall proper until the first concrete was laid on the 17th of August. So for four days, it was largely sort of makeshift fencing and barriers. These borders became the stage for several decades of standoffs, uh, both in Berlin and along the east-west border. Now, my father was actually stationed in Fulda on the eastern border um, in the late 70s. I was actually born while we were stationed there. And so I can tell you a little bit about how the border itself worked. Now, my father was part of a squadron um, of American military, and that squadron was expected to take the first brunt of an invasion coming from the east. At that point in time, they expected that first battle to last 20 minutes and for the squadron to experience an 80% casualty rate. Now, despite that, they were expected to take out one to one and a half full regiments of East German military in the process. That's odds of about five to one. Now, they expected forces of about seven to one to invade, so there's still a little bit of uh, disparity there. Civilians associated with the squadron were expected to maintain bug-out bags that included clothes, food, water, formula if you had an infant, um, a full tank of gas, things like this. You needed to be able to evacuate in an instant. On a more personal note, my older brother started calling everything that flew a copter because there was an awful lot of helicopter activity surrounding the border. The treatment of attempted defectors was often very harsh. My father told me a story about a man who triggered a mine along the border fence and then lingered for three days under the watchful eyes of the East German guards. They didn't take him off until he died on his own. Now, the German border was not actually the first to open to the West. Hungary actually opened its borders in 1988. It was slipping from Soviet control, and um, it allowed East Germans through the border to Austria in August of 1989. This is when we first started seeing East Germans in West Germany, and that was quite a ride, I can tell you. Now, Czechoslovakia opened their borders on the 3rd of November, which left East Germany with a very awkward situation of their citizens being able to escape to the West without actually going through an East German border. On November 9th, the Politburo voted to open the borders, but they wanted to open them on the 10th, which would allow the border guards time to prepare for the onslaught. Uh, a note to that effect was passed to Gunter Shabovsky, who mistakenly in a press conference said that the change was immediate. That uh, caused no end of confusion at the gates, but eventually it was straightened out, and just before midnight, uh, the border was essentially open, and the Aussies were greeted with open arms by the Vesties on the other side. Now, this sounds like a fairy tale ending. East and West are united, everyone's happy once again, but... 
there were some adjustment issues that I saw when we were living there. Uh, for example, the Autobahn, which between cities at that point didn't have a speed limit, uh, suddenly had a horde of Trabants driving on it. The Trebbies were very small cars with very small engines and a very low top speed. But in East Germany, everybody had a Trebby, and so there was very little understanding about fast lanes and slow lanes. So uh, there were a number of times that we would be tazzing along on the Autobahn in our 84 Ford Escort and uh, crest a hill to see two small bicycle reflector-style lights in front of us. We were always fortunate enough to not hit anybody, but many Trabants were not so lucky. If the very fact that they weren't driving a Trabant were not enough to identify them as Easterners, if you managed not to hit one and uh, got into a different lane, you would notice almost invariably the Trebbies were full to the gills with people, but of course, because, you know, the trip to the West is a great adventure, and in the back window... There were oranges and toilet paper. This is almost uniform. Every Trebby I saw had oranges and toilet paper in that back window. Occasionally, we would pop around the corner to our local Verkauf to do some grocery shopping, and we would encounter somebody standing and just staring at the shelves, just completely flabbergasted by the quantity and the variety of goods available for purchase and that they were actually for purchase not just for show. Our good friend Tanya, the daughter of the aforementioned Waldemar and Gisela, told us a story about an East German girl who had come into the school and didn't understand how to write a Western essay because she didn't know what political statement the teacher wanted to read in the essay. Now, I was 11 when all of this was going on, and I had been raised from my very birth to think of the Easterners as being a threat to my very existence. We had bomb drills at school. We had this idea that at any point in time, our fathers would be called up to fight a war against these people, and we would have to flee for our lives to the West. Suddenly, these monsters, these boogeymen from my childhood were bewildered people standing and not knowing what toilet paper to buy. I found myself thinking about the things that Valdemar had told me just a few years before and realized that we need to understand history, we need to understand events, because it doesn't matter who you are or where you are. The events around you and the government that rules over you hopefully with your consent, they affect who you are and the fundamental experience of your life. In a way, there are no boogeymen, and yet these terrible things, these terrible conditions continue to propagate and continue to exist throughout the world. These are sort of heavy thoughts for an 11-year-old, so I can honestly say that having been in Germany at this particular moment in time, pushed me to think of the world in a completely new and different way and made me see myself as part of history, something that is continuing to be and continuing to shape my experience and the world around us. The formal historical record doesn't necessarily account for these interpersonal relationships, these 
interactions between just common everyday people. But that's how history is really made. That is history in its rawest, purest form. It's the history that we experience every day. So what I'd like to ask you, our loyal listeners, to do is come visit our website at footnotinghistory.com and tell us what you remember about the Berlin Wall, what you remember about a divided East and West. And if you are too young to remember the Iron Curtain, talk to us about the historical events that you've seen in your life and how you have seen yourself as a part of that longer history. Let's have a conversation and fill in some of those gaps in that historical record. After all, we're history's footnotes, and that's where the interesting stuff really happens. This has been Footnoting History. If you like the podcast, be sure to visit our website, footnotinghistory.com, where you can find further reading suggestions related to this week's episode, as well as a calendar of upcoming podcasts. You can also like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at History Footnote. Until next time, remember, the best stories are always in the footnotes. See you next week!